Good morning. Have we been to church yet? I think so. Um, I would invite you to hear the word of the gospel this morning, uh, the gospel of Luke chapter 24. If you have a Bible or a phone, I won't assume you're on Instagram, or a little bit I will, but um, Luke chapter 4. So what's just happened is really important to know. Jesus was just crucified, kind of a big big point in the story, Um, but some of the women have gone to the tomb and discovered that Jesus' body is missing, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and they've run back and told the disciples, and a couple of the disciples went, and they saw the tomb was empty too, and now we're back here, and it's been three days. So I'd invite you, we're going to start at verse 13 in chapter 24. On that same day, Two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. While they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. But they were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they stopped, their faces downcast. The one named Cleopas replied, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place over these last few days? Jesus said to them, What things? They said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago, but there's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning, and they didn't find his body. They came to us saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who told them he is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women said. They didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ or Messiah to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us? They got up right then and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions together. They were saying to each other, the Lord really has risen. He appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples described what had happened along the road and how Jesus had made known to them as he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
Now, in this passage, as it's possible with most of the scriptures, it's really just far too easy to distance ourselves. We don't place ourselves in the story. Instead, we kind of feel like we're watching TV. And as we shovel our faces with popcorn, we shout at the TV, ah, these guys are dumb. These disciples are just stupid. I would have recognized Jesus. But that's kind of like, uh, does anybody else watch the Olympics and get really, really into them? It's kind of like after like three days of the Winter Olympics, I'm an expert on curling and ski jumping. And that thing during the summer where they have the different bar heights, I can totally do that. These fools, I can't believe she tried to do a back handspring right then in the routine. How stupid. Or like when we watch the NFL, and I would have made that catch. Hit him right in the hands. What is he doing? We kind of become like Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite, where if coach had just put me in, we would have won the state championship. And we watch the disciples and we think, gosh, you guys are so dumb. But see, there's this really ancient way of reading scripture that's not really outdated, so I highly recommend it to you, in which we intentionally imagine ourselves as different characters within the narratives and imagine what they would have seen and what they would have heard, what they would have felt, what they would have been experiencing, sometimes even what they would have smelled maybe. We put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. We put ourselves even sometimes in Jesus' shoes or in the Pharisees' shoes. And we do this so that as we experience the narrative and experience Scripture as if it were happening to us, we can begin to see maybe how Jesus is encountering them or how God the Father or God the Spirit is encountering them. And we can begin to imagine and understand the ways in which that same triune God is encountering us and breaking into our world around us right now. Because as much as we love to demonize the Pharisees in the evangelical church, we love to do that, right? Oh, you're just being Pharisaical. We love to make fun of them, and we love to hate on the disciples before Jesus' resurrection. But aren't we basically, like, the same as them most of the time? Are we not as sectarian and judgmental and short-sighted and bigoted and blind to what God is doing as the disciples were, as the Pharisees were? But does that not also mean that this same Jesus who completely turned their worlds upside down can do the same thing in our world? So with this story, let's put our feet in the shoes of the disciples. This is probably a husband and a wife traveling along the road to Emmaus. They've basically spent up to maybe three years of their life completely leaving everything behind and giving full allegiance and trust that this Jesus of Nazareth, this dirty, homeless rabbi, could have been the Messiah. They've not, they didn't hedge their bets. They were following him. They were in Jerusalem and witnessed what took place or fled like some of the other 12. Their lives had been completely uprooted, most likely, and all of their loyalty had been pledged to Jesus as the Messiah. And then this would-be Messiah, Dunn got killed. He didn't just die. He was killed. 
As so often happens in our world, the hands of religion and the hands of state, the hands of the powerful shook and struck a deal in order to silence this rabbi, to end his revolution against Caesar and against the Pharisees. They conspired and they paid off false witnesses in order to accomplish their goal. And so he, this Jesus, was killed not just in one of the most horrific ways imaginable to us, but in one of the most shameful ways. He was stripped naked and paraded through the streets bleeding. And then it was the intention of the Romans to leave his body hanging so that everyone would walk past it on the road into Jerusalem and see his body and think, I'm not going to declare myself king. But of course the Pharisees, being super religiously conscious, step up and say, can we please bury his body so we can celebrate Passover? So we're not, relig- we're not defiled? Can you hear the echoes of irony in that? They just wrongfully convicted someone and had him killed, and they're like, but we really want to celebrate Thanksgiving. Can you take him down? And all of this has taken place in the background of this event. These two disciples are making what probably feels like a very long journey back to their old lives, discussing everything that had happened, all the miracles they had witnessed, all the hopes they had had, how dashed they felt. They were imagining what might have been if only this Jesus of Nazareth had been more Messiah-like. Because, see, they had this lens they just couldn't see around, right? It's not like they were the only ones who had missed the memo. It's not like the disciples had just missed the boat on some really important knowledge that everyone else seemed to have. Nobody was expecting a Messiah that looked like that. It was only later that Christians and followers of Jesus read the Old Testament, like passages like Elizabeth read, and thought, hey, that sounds like Jesus, I think this was maybe talking about Jesus. The Jews of that time did not have that kind of 2020 vision. Their vision of Messiah was not, did not involve a cross. We have the benefit of the past. They did not. They did not see that this one was intended to suffer that this one was intended to circumvent their own systems of religion, that this one was meant to actually grasp culture and government and say, this is not right. They expected Messiah to bring political security. Certainly the people of Israel wanted power and influence. We do too. They expected Messiah to restore David's throne, literally, They expected a descendant of David literally to sit on a throne and depose Caesar's rule. But they also expected Messiah to bring God's justice, to restore things as they were meant to be, to bring about shalom. And so when Jesus is doing all these Messiah prophet-like things, but God's justice hasn't come yet, they're thinking he's just another forerunner. He's just another prophet because he hasn't done what they expected to happen. And it's kind of hard to administer justice from the seat of power when you're being tried in a kangaroo court and then being crucified. Kind of hard to administer justice 
from the dead. Literally no one in all of the history of Judaism to that point had imagined a Messiah, or even Judaism, modern Judaism, imagined a Messiah that would suffer the way that Jesus did. And so because of this lens, they were absolutely blinded to see what God was doing in and through this Jesus of Nazareth because it wasn't what they expected or even really wanted God to be doing. They wanted Caesar and Rome out, understandably. And so when this Jesus instead embodies a subversive way of living, that's not... Jesus, you just messed up, man. And the disciples could not see it. They could not confront their own biases because they couldn't imagine any other world. Except for that Jesus had told them a different world, had imagined with them, had told them over and over and over again, for the Son of Man must suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and must be handed over to death and then will be raised on the third day. And they accepted that really well, right? How does that story go, Drew? What does Peter say? Does he say, yeah, that sounds great. No, Peter's like, Peter pulls Jesus aside like a PR man is like, listen, Jesus, this is a really bad idea. You can't tell people that. You need to calm it down, man. That's not what you're supposed to do. And Jesus is like, oh, Peter, you know what? You're right. I went off script. My bad. Take two. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are thinking of things of earth and not of heaven. The disciples took it really well, I think. But Jesus told them, just like he often tells us. Because we would never refuse to hear Jesus' words, right? We would never refuse to listen to the Spirit correcting something that we have held on to for years and years and years. We're just like, okay, Jesus, cross it is. If we are honest, how many times have we struggled to accept something that we know God has spoken over us over and over. How many times does God reset our feet to learn the same lesson and learn the same things over and over? And when we're honest, how often would we prefer those same things that the Jews wanted in Jesus' time over the Messiah that we actually have? Do we not also want someone to give us assurance that the politics that we prefer will hold power? Do we also not want God's justice to be prescribed, or at least our definition of God's justice? How often does God confront us and we say, listen, God, that's not a very good plan. It's not really sellable, marketable. I can't put that on a billboard. We, too, are just as blinded to what God is doing because we, too, have biases. Just like our Jewish ancestors of faith in this passage, we have a cultural milieu, or as Jake said, a soup that we sit in. Just like saying Messiah triggered some image in their mind, a very specific and particular image, or the word Gentile 
or Samaritan. We have similar words and people groups that when they are said to us, we prickle. We don't want to hear it. And Jesus dismantled every single one of those prejudices over and over and over again for his disciples. But we have the same baggage. We just have different names, right? We don't really have a thing about Gentiles anymore, per se. Whether we're aware of our biases or not, or whether we don't want to admit them or not, or whether our culture, our society, our neighborhoods, our families have just instilled them so deeply in us we aren't even conscious of them anymore, we all have biases and we are all blind to them most of the time. Here's an example. A national study sent out fake resumes across the entire country with names that either sounded really stereotypically white or really stereotypically African-American. All of the other information on these resumes was identical. They had the same qualifications. They had the same levels of education. And what did the study find? The names like Emily or Megan or Greg were 50% more likely to get a call for an interview than someone with a name like Lakeisha or Jamal. That's not a study from 1940. That study has been conducted every year for the last 20 years and remains largely the same. These people that are looking at these resumes are not white supremacists in hoods. They're average people who have a bias they don't know they have. That over years and years and years, they have been instilled with something that probably was just a joke when they were a kid. But when they hear a name like Jamal, something is clicked in their brain and without even knowing it, they make an assumption about what kind of work ethic that person has. And sometimes it's really big and scary things like race, guys. It happens. Sometimes it's not as big and scary as that. Right? Sometimes it's assuming that every woman you encounter is nurturing or that every woman you encounter wants to be a mom real bad. Sometimes it's assuming that every person over a certain age just thinks that way. They're just stuck like that. That's a bias. That's a prejudice that we carry. And most of the time, we're not doing it intentionally. And whether it is intentional or not, whether it's something we're even aware of or not, whether it's because of our family or the friends we had as a kid or something we watched on TV a lot, we all have ingrained biases. Every single one of us. It can be, like we said, any of those things. It can be assuming the person holding a sign on the side of the road begging for money probably deserves that. It can be assuming that a person suffering from alcoholism or addiction, that was just the sum total of their choices. It can be assuming a person on welfare looks different than you and didn't just have a bad string of luck or maybe grew up in a home where they didn't see anybody work. Or they grew up in a home with no hope. When that happens, sometimes 
we catch our bias, right? We catch ourselves thinking that and think, that is not right. (laughs) And so sometimes, friends, we can't trust our gut. No matter how many times Gibbs says to you on NCIS. Because our gut is shaped more by the world around us than it is by the life of the Spirit more often than not. And I promised Rochelle I'd make the disclaimer. Sometimes you do need to trust your gut, right? Especially if you're entering into a new relationship and this person kind of triggers your creep factor. Trust your gut there. And if you're confused, definitely talk to someone who has a good gut, right? But we need to confront the reality that as a culture, we privilege our gut feeling over fact, right? We do that. We privilege the thing we see on Facebook over like a factual study, right? Because it makes my gut feel right, right? In the Jewish mindset, your guts were the seeding of all of your like thinking and feeling. So in the Old Testament, when it says, I love you in my heart, it's not saying heart, like the little red thing that we color on Valentine's Day. It's saying love from your guts, literally, from your bowels, as gross as that is, because that's where they thought all of that took place. In the ancient world, do you know why they pulled the brains out of corpses? Because they were useless in their minds. That wasn't the seed of thinking. That was just mush. That's where you get bone marrow. They thought you thought with your guts, literally. And we now do that. We have to begin to confront those things so that when we see a homeless person, most of us can begin to think, I wonder what Jesus thinks of that person. Instead of, I wonder what my gut tells me about that person. And it's not just about other people that we have these things, right? We have these presuppositions and these gut feelings about God sometimes. Maybe it was something that we were raised with that we believe that when something really terrible happens to you, God's just throwing a test at you and wants to see how it works out. Or maybe it's that God just has a predilection towards anger with you, that God is always angry. Those are things that sometimes our gut says, yes. And so we just float through life avoiding homeless people because they smell funny and they're just not trustworthy and they probably can't hold down a job. And we hope that people don't see our kids freak out because sometimes we have this bias that says, oh, that kid is freaking out in the supermarket. I bet their parents are terrible. Instead of maybe that's just a kid freaking out in the supermarket. And so we spend our lives avoiding people or hiding our kids from the public so they don't see them freak out. We're avoiding praying because we're afraid that if we tell God what we really want, then God won't, will hold it back from us because God just really wants to test me and God really just wants to take away everything good. But can we step back into the shoes of the disciples for just a minute? Can we pause and maybe just think what changes their entire world in this passage? Think about this. The resurrected Lord of all creation seems perfectly content just walking seven miles with them with his friends, and telling them yet again what it looks like for Messiah to come to them. Telling them for the upteenth time 
Remember Moses and the prophets? This isn't new. Can we just pause and actually listen as Jesus traces that line from Genesis all the way through Malachi, through the entire Old Testament, pointing out the places that this was God's intention, that this isn't something new and diverting, but this is something ancient and true? And follow the line as God encounters Israel over and over again and says, you are not being faithful, but I will seek after you anyways. And I will bring you back from exile and I will restore you to Jerusalem despite the fact that yet again you are unfaithful. Can we trace the line where God tells Israel over and over and over again about the precursor that Jesus of Nazareth will show up and be Messiah? Not like his name. It's not some hidden codex that you can find. Oh, it spells Jesus. But it's not just these learning facts, right? Because facts only get us so far. It's not the learning of Jesus that changes their hearts and that changes their world. But the moment when they truly see Jesus was when he broke bread with them. And the language of this passage should remind us of something that we do every single week. He took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, giving it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. They recognize Jesus when they eat with him, and not just with him, but our tradition says when they eat upon him, when they eat the body of Christ. And suddenly their eyes are opened, and they see that this Messiah is in fact who they have been waiting for for thousands of years. And they finally believed not just as a mental assent, but they believed as a total trust and total swearing of allegiance that yes, Jesus of Nazareth, dirty and homeless though you be, you are God's chosen redeemer for all of the world. The one who will restore the world to God's good intentions and bring about God's justice. You are the one that will bind up the brokenhearted and bring healing to all the worlds. And I think maybe they hear again the words of Jesus on his very first sermon. When he reads from the prophet Isaiah saying, The spirit of the Lord is upon me to because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. They encounter the resurrected Jesus, and their eyes are opened, and their hearts are completely changed. All that they experienced along that seven-mile walk is suddenly illuminated in a brand new way, were our hearts not burning within us as we walked along and spoke of the scriptures? And the light of Christ shines back through the years of their time with him, and their life takes on a different light. And immediately, it says, they jump up and walk right back to Jerusalem. After they just discouraged this resurrected Jesus from traveling at night, they do the same thing, despite the fact that at that time it would have been incredibly dangerous and kind of stupid they do it anyways. They travel back because they recognize the importance and the gravity of what they just witnessed. And they have to tell the other disciples that their hopes were not dashed. 
Jesus has been raised from the dead and God has declared he is Messiah. He is the savior of the entire world. He is Christ. He is Lord in the resurrection, which has never happened before. And they see that something bigger and greater and more beautiful than what they had wanted from God has come to pass in Jesus, this Messiah that they never saw coming. Brothers and sisters, have we encountered the same resurrected Jesus? Can not our biases and our blinded eyes also be illuminated? Cannot Jesus enter into where we are and say, here, let me show you a new way that's actually a very old way? Can we not also be corrected by the grace of God and the presence of Christ? Can our hopes not be reimagined and realigned? The good news of the gospel is that no matter what, whether we are just encountering Jesus for the very first time, where we've been walking the road to Emmaus for many years, there is still more to see. That perhaps there is grace even for the people we're afraid of or the people we hate. But perhaps, and more staggeringly, maybe there is grace and even abounding love for us too. The journey with Christ is not an arrival point where suddenly we're holy and sanctified and we're great. But God is constantly encountering us over and over and over again to illuminate to us not just the sins that we actively do, but the shortcomings we aren't even aware that we have. The Holy Spirit is constantly inviting us into a new way of seeing. We do not need to walk in blindness forever. This Jesus has come also to set us free. To give sight to our blinded eyes. To give us the meal that tells us who he is. Will we also see who Jesus is when he breaks bread with us? Even when that breaking of bread is with someone that maybe we didn't really want at the table in the first place. Perhaps this Jesus can encounter us in ways we have, cannot imagine yet. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen.